morning, I'm going to try, if we can, for at least uh, this next 45 minutes or so, to just cover quickly uh, three of God's perfections or attributes um, that are very much related, or it's great to look at them together. Number one, holiness. Number two, the justice of God. And number three, the mercy of God. So God's holiness and his justice and his mercy. It's very important, I think, to look at these together, uh, even though separate studies of them are warranted um, all the time in your life. But looking at them together is unique because it, it is wonderful to, um, when you think about the holiness of God, to then be compelled to do what we're called to do in light of it. This whole series has been about that. But when you think about God's holiness and therefore the justice that he will exercise and does exercise against all sin, anything that's less than holy, and then on the heels of that, you think about this wonderful perfection of his mercy uh, as a package. It is uniquely edifying, I think, always has been for me. We begin, of course, with God's holiness. Let's look at uh, so many key passages, but... Familiar text, first of all, Leviticus 19, and then we'll move to that great section in the call of Isaiah in Isaiah 6. But in Leviticus 19, you have this great statement about God's character, which he gives of himself. The Lord spoke to Moses, verse 1, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. This is God's self-attestation. He is separate. Maybe uh, the best way to look at this at its... Uh, macro level is that holiness speaks of God's otherness, his being separate from everything and utterly unique. That's at the heart of what it means, at least initially, for God to be holy. And yet the idea of separateness doesn't exhaust the meaning. The holiness of God is an eternal perfection. All of his perfections are eternal which means God was holy before there was anything to be separate from or other than. So that would be the way to initially look at this. He is separate and therefore marked out as unique and utterly other than everything else. But before there was anything created to be separate from, he is holy. I am holy, he says. In um, the book on holiness that was written by R.C. Sproul, he makes this statement, when the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate, so far above and beyond us that he seems almost totally foreign to us. To be holy is to be other, to be different in a special way. And the same basic meaning is used when the word holy is applied to earthly things. Now, when we understand how this has been articulated through the centuries, you come to 
catechisms like the Westminster Shorter teaching, which says this, God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. So that is to say that he, he is eternal in all of these perfections, infinite in all of them, and so his holiness is also the same. Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 declares what Isaiah heard the angels say, as we'll look at in a minute. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. That assertion reminds us that God's holiness pre-existed creation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So his holiness pre-existed creation. It goes right to the core of what God means when he declares that he's holy. His perfection of holiness is infinite. <clears throat> it is eternal. It is unchangeable. We've looked at all of that. And he never violates or compromises or dilutes his nature. So he is holy, which means the perfections of Holiness involve his purity, the purity of his nature, which can never be compromised. <clears throat> so we would say that holiness means he's separate, but the essential quality of God's holiness is the purity <clears throat> of his nature. Sinclair Ferguson crisply declares it like this. God's holiness is the searing purity of his eternal and infinite being searing purity of it. Look at Isaiah 6, and you see this when Isaiah is called <clears throat> to be God's prophet. Isaiah 6, verse 1, in the year of King Uzziah's death, <clears throat> I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, thank you, with the train of his robe filling the temple, Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So here you have these angelic beings, they are antiphonally proclaiming to one another this great perfection of God, which is the only perfection spoken of in triplicate. He is holy, 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 searing purity. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Isaiah is seeing the vision and because he is a creature, finite, and because he is a fallen creature, sinful, and because he is being given a vision of God, this isn't merely that the angels are saying it, he's seeing it. And he, he cannot have 
um, any normal human experience in this vision. You can't be taking in data and processing it in some way on trial, evaluating things as if he has something to say about it. His reaction is impulsive, it is swift, it is contextual. The processing of this information and this sight and this vision is so fast and so abrupt and so violent that he has no choice but to say what he says. Woe is me, for I am ruined. This is to understand that you are cursed in God's presence. It's great language here. I'm cursed. Um, I'm ruined. It would be, <clears throat> it would be like undone. That's a good English word, undone. Some commentators have even tried to explain it further because the terminology here is quite graphic. It's like I'm, I'm undone in the sense that I've, I've come apart. I've completely disintegrated. And I'm cursed. Why? Because everything that comes out of my mouth is unclean. And I live among a people who are the most religious people on the face of the earth, God's people, and yet we're unclean. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So here you have the, the automatic, impulsive, only reasonable reaction of a finite fallen creature in the face of God's person, his searing purity, and the declaration of the angelic beings that he is holy, holy, holy. One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he'd taken from the altar with tongs. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. This is the imagery of the cleansing of the redeeming work God does by his, by his own means. If you go back to Leviticus where he said, I am holy, and you just want to do your devotion in the book of Leviticus, maybe that's what you gravitate toward. But if you want to understand how to benefit from reading the book of Leviticus, you understand that God had given a constitution to his people in the book of Exodus. He had delivered them. He gave a constitution to them. And he said to them, I want you to obey everything I've commanded. Well, they didn't. Even the first high priest, Aaron, the very first one, the very first one of the Levitical priestly line got impatient and went along with an idolatrous display, a vile going against those commands. God gave them a constitution. He delivered them. He gave them all that they needed. He even cleaned out the remnant. You're, you're done. I'm cleaning you out. And 
they still were wicked. So by the time you get to Leviticus, God is saying to them, if you're going to enter my presence, you're going to have to do it by two things. You're going to have to be clean yourself and there's going to have to be a sacrifice for your cleansing because you can't be in my presence without a cleansing and without being clean and there can be no cleansing without a sacrifice. So you're going to bring sacrifices in order to be able to be in my presence as my people. And you won't even be face to face with me. That will be a mediator that I've chosen. Uh, And of course, Moses is his choice. So Isaiah is experiencing the very same thing. The searing purity of God's eternal and infinite being. And he comes face to face with God in this vision. And he says, I'm finished. I'm undone. Perfect and holy purity requires that something substandard to that holiness be punished with full force immediately. God's holy justice requires that anything less than his holiness be made undone, disintegrate, cursed, punished with full force of his wrath at all times for every single infraction, no exceptions. God's justice is sometimes a difficult pill to swallow in light of his in light of what is revealed in his word, you know, if you spend any length of time in the Old Testament, you squint, you, you wince sometimes when you come across certain violent passages. And unbelievers have constantly used God's justice in the Old Testament as, you know, sort of their justification for not believing. Well, he's inhumane, he's unfair, he's harsh, he's unnecessarily judgmental. <laughs> Others try to make excuses for what's written and and say it's myth um, when it comes to brutal passages. God's mean, he's hot-tempered, he's impulsive, he's unpredictable. In the New Testament, people have thought, see, I I like that kind of person because I see loving, I see excessively soft behavior from God through, through this person, Jesus, this humanitarian. God seems in the New Testament to some like a God who's begging for man to give him the time of day and he wants to let bygones be bygones, bury the hatchet. And in the Old Testament, he's this capricious God. You think of places where his holiness shows up in dramatic fashion. Leviticus 10 Just for a moment, let's remind ourselves of what happened in Leviticus 10, the priests, Aaron's sons, he's the high priest and his two sons, Nadab and Abihu, were priests. And Aaron had this 
very close relationship with God. And you would think, well, maybe he gets some leniency because he's, you know, the high priest and he's chosen by God. And yet what happens here when these two boys came to, under Aaron's training, be consecrated, wearing the priestly garments in the priestly service, the sons of Aaron, verse 1, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on, an, on, on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Well, that's obvious. If he didn't command it, then it's strange. Sometimes people just go gymnastics trying to figure out what they did, but it wasn't what he commanded. It was substandard to what God had wanted. There was something in it, the heart of which was not actually humble and sacrificial. It was disobedient, therefore it was prideful, it was rebellious, it was casual, it was, it was cocky, it was their own making, it was something of their own intellect. And something you never do is stand between God and the people as the representative and be substandard to his commands. Otherwise, that kind of sin from this priestly line would just spread through God's people. His people would be destroyed. So they offered strange fire. That was a violation of the prescribed method given in Exodus Exodus 30. And verse 2, I mean, there's just absolutely no paragraph between it, no setup. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. I mean, that scene must have been quick, violent, very frightening. Because fire came out from the presence of the Lord. So it wasn't like something caught on fire in the, the act. The fire came from above them and consumed them and they died right there. Then Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke saying, by those who come near me, I'll be treated as holy and before all the people I will be honored. What is stunning here is like Isaiah who sees the throne of God and knows this means his doom, Aaron seems to get the same point. The end of verse 3 is just shocking. Aaron therefore kept silent. His two boys, dead. And sometimes people read that, they're like, that's cruel and unusual. We believe the punishment has to fit the crime, and we think we've made a right assessment of the crime. Death for one small slip-up, one small act of disobedience, that just seems unfair and unjust. Look further at First Chronicles 13. Again, the justice of God can make us wince. When David became king, you know, he decided to bring the ark back to the central place. Israel had...
captured the ark from the Philistines and Uzzah was killed for touching the ark. You note here that they were transporting it. And um, David consulted with the captains of the thousands and the hundreds and with every leader. David said to all the assembly of Israel, it seems good, if it seems good to you and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and the Levites who are with them in their cities with pasture lands that they may meet with us and let us bring back the ark of our God to us for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. And all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. And so David assembled all Israel together from the Shehor of Egypt, even to the entrance of Hamath, to bring the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all Israel went up to Bala, that is to Kiriath-Jerim, which belongs to Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord who's enthroned above the cherubim where his name is called. And so they carried the ark of God on a cart. It was a new cart from the house of Abinadab and Uzzah and Ayo drove the cart. David and all Israel were celebrating before God with all their might, even with the songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and cymbals and trumpets. This is a massive transport display when they came to the threshing floor. By the way, it's very formal. I mean, the whole thing is a formal ceremony. It's very formally done. Everybody's involved. Everybody has a role to play. The thing is in full celebration. And when they came to the threshing floor of Chidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly tipped it over. I get that. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. So he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark and he died there before God. And then David became angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. <laughs> this is just wild scene. Uzzah, Uzzah. whoa, whoa, whoa. He puts his hand out. now. This isn't like you might imagine. He sees it tipping and he runs over there very quickly to do it. No, he's in a formal position. He, he knows his role. He understands the sobriety and seriousness of it. He should have thought about it. He was a Kohathite. They were non-priests, but he knew very well the rules. He was trained. Numbers chapter 4, 15 to 20. You don't do this. So this was a moment when he decided, I've got to do something. I'll just fudge the command a little bit. He was killed. Love what one commentator said. Uzzah assumed his hand was less polluted than the earth. That's right. Come on, it seems like such a small thing. In Genesis 18.25, Abraham asked this question, shall not the judge of the earth do what is right? We struggle to understand it because when Israel went into the land of Canaan, men, women, and children were slaughtered by Israel at God's command, Deuteronomy 7, 1 and 2. 
We view people as innocent bystanders. Look at Luke 13 for a moment. Just thinking about the justice of God and how we view these things. We sometimes see humanity as innocent and therefore, you know, these things in a fallen world just should not be happening. But you remember in Luke 13, on the same occasion, verse 1, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And um, Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. If bad things happen to people and you want to make it that they are innocent somehow, Jesus says here two things. Number one, don't imagine that if bad things happen to people, that means they're worse than you. But know this, everybody is going to face death. You don't know when it's going to come. But if you face it without me, without repentance, you're going to perish for all eternity in the same sudden way. You, you were living your life, living your sin, unrepentant, doing what you want. Everything's going along and your life is gone and you're before the Creator you'll likewise perish. In our minds, how can God let innocent people suffer? We talked about this when we talked about his sovereignty. And Jesus could have said, well, they're sorry, not much we could do. God was maybe napping, it's like some theological systems try to postulate. But we harbor the notion here's the problem we harbor the notion that God owes mercy to humanity. How could God keep me out of heaven? We've come to expect mercy and grace. God is so merciful in light of his holiness, which made Isaiah undone when he saw it. God is so gracious all the time, so merciful, even to an unbelieving world, that when he does something just, when he expresses his justice, which he could express all the time, we suddenly think he's unjust. Again, some comments from R.C. Sproul, no matter how much injustice I've suffered at the hands of the world, I've never suffered the slightest injustice from the hand of God. That's true. Notice Jesus goes on to say, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem? Here's a natural evil. The, the mixture, the slaughter by Pilate of some and the mixing of their blood with the sacrifices was a moral evil. Jesus mentions a natural evil. The tower of Siloam fell and killed 18 people. Do you think that happened to them because somehow God was being just to their sin and they're worse off than anybody else? You think you're innocent? You deserve mercy? No, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. 
We reason, if God is merciful to 20, then he needs to be equally merciful to another 20. Because of this, we, we forget the amazing, profound nature of his searing purity in his justice. There's that now famous clip on YouTube of that Q&A at, at a Ligonier conference. The MC posed the question, since God is slow to anger and patient, then why when man first sinned was his wrath and his punishment so severe and long-lasting? And Sproul gave this response, this creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God and God had said in the day you eat of the forbidden tree, you shall surely die. And instead of dying that day, he lived another day and was clothed in, in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time. But the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. And the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? <laughs> it's such a great... I think it's become a meme, hasn't it? What's wrong with you people? And then he said this as people were laughing. I'm serious. I mean, that is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is and we don't know who we are. The question isn't why was it, it wasn't it infinitely, the question is why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we had any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question. That's true. Um, Romans 1 says, even though they knew God, they did not acknowledge him as God or give thanks. I mean, you look at things from God's vantage point every single day. His creatures live their lives belittling and defiantly suppressing the truth of his providence, his person, his power, and his patience with more unrighteousness. So you see that he's holy and therefore he must be just, but his perfections are, they all are a part of him in coexistence. So there isn't ever one attribute that is diminished while another one is in operation. And so while he's also searingly pure and holy, and while he must bring justice against unholiness, he is also infinitely, eternally, and perfectly merciful. He's merciful. Psalm 136, verse 1, his mercy endures forever. We looked at that when we looked at God's compassion. Same idea Grace and mercy kind of go together, but they are different. One songwriter, I think, tried to express the difference by saying, grace keeps giving me things I don't deserve, and mercy keeps withholding things I do. That's a great way to express it. Grace gives me what I don't deserve. Mercy withholds what I do deserve. Great is his mercy, 1 Kings 3, verse 6. 
It is in abundance. Psalm 86, verse 5. His tender mercies. Luke chapter 1, verse 7. They are from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 103, verse 17. God is a merciful God. He loves to express mercy. This is what he said when Moses said, please tell me who you are. And he said, I am merciful. I forgive. I forgive iniquities. There's a general mercy of God, which is over all his works, Psalm 145, verse 9. A general mercy in our being able to have life and existence. Acts 17, 25, he's the one who gives to all life and breath and all things. We saw when he was, when we were studying his compassion, which this, this loyal love of God, we saw that he has a love for his creation and all humanity and that he sends even the rain on the just and the unjust. And so in that sense, he has a general and a temporal mercy given to all. But then there is a special eternal mercy reserved for those whom he, upon whom he has set his love. It's reserved for the heirs of salvation. According to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 27 verse 11, there's no mercy beyond the grave for the wicked. Though his mercy endures forever, it is in perfect harmony with his sovereign plan. So both his justice and his mercy are regulated perfectly by his sovereign will. And so when it comes to his divine mercy, God alone determines within himself the extent of it, the recipients, the duration, and the effect. This is what he, me he meant when he said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, he said to Moses. And Paul repeats it in Romans 9. It is not the misery and wretchedness of his creatures which causes him to be merciful. He is mercy by character, by perfection, by nature. We saw that last time. He's not coerced into loving And it is not the merits of his creatures. Mercy, by definition, excludes merit. Titus 3.5, according to his mercy, he saved us. So it is by his grace. And it has to be by his mercy and his grace. Or I could not be saved. You know, there was that great song, were it not for grace, I... I could tell you where I'd be wandering down some pointless road to nowhere with my salvation up to me. If my salvation were up to me, it's over. I mean, there are all kinds of reasons why I'd be doomed if there were no perfection in God of his mercy. Not the least of which is... As Isaiah said, I am undone, just 
by my nature and what comes out of my mouth reflects the heart. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. So my heart is defiled and what comes out of my mouth, because it comes from a defiled heart, defiles me in God's presence. And because I had seen in the vision, Isaiah said, that he is holy. I'd seen his throne. How am I ever going to be in eternity with him if around his throne the angels cover their face and their feet and then they fly in service to him and they say to one another in this antiphonal constant voice, holy, holy, holy. If that's what's before his throne, I can never enter eternity. And if there were no mercy or grace. And I had to get there on my own into eternity. So many things would be against me. We might just say everything in the universe would be against it. First, I'd have to come alive spiritually when I'm already dead, so I can't do that. I'd have to see my sin rightly. There'd have to be my own ability to see things without blindness and having seen them, then I'd have to see my need for God to redeem and then I'd have to entrust my entire life and eternity to him as my only hope to a savior I've never seen, a God I cannot see who is spirit. And if just that were what I had to do, then Satan would surely use everything at his disposal to make sure I died before I believed, even if I could speculate that I could believe on my own. And I'm sure that means that the demonic hosts would bring all the forces of hell against me like this bondage around my life of evil. The world with all of its godlessness would be my playground. It would be the, the world's influence. It would be the wide road that leads to destruction. I'd be on that, and so I'd have to get off that on my own when the whole momentum is moving that way. I, without grace or mercy, I couldn't do that. And since I fear man by nature, then I would never choose God in a world where I'd suddenly be mostly alone. So just right out of the gate, if I had no, if God was not merciful and gracious, if his justice prevailed, then even my life here on this earth, I, I couldn't get to him. I couldn't accomplish it. And even if that stage were doable somehow in some way, how would I hold on to it? Even if I could have a spark of genuine belief that were there before the mercy and grace of God. You know, the whole idea of prevenient grace, we're made in the image of God, we're fallen, but there's prevenient grace, there's still enough grace within us to see it on our own. Look, even if I had a spark of prevenient grace, which we deny because the Bible doesn't teach it, but even if, as some have taught, that it's there and you had a spark of it, how would you hold on to it? all the way to the throne, confident that when you get there, you won't have Isaiah's experience. How could you do that? You'd have to live the rest of this life on that one spark in the face of relentless temptations around you that would easily engulf and destroy every conviction that you built or that that spark is supposed to inspire. 
man, it would just overturn every act of our willpower or resolve. And then false teachers, at least somewhere, would have captivate us through their hypocrisy and their subtleties. And then false doctrines would come too fast and they'd be so masked that on our own, with that little spark to live on, we wouldn't have the moral filters to deal with it. We'd end up deceived. So even if you could find a provenient spark of grace without the mercy of God, there's no way. I'd have to fight every day against devastating things like the discouragement and doubt and despair that we fight all the time. The unbearable burden on one's conscience if, if I had to deal with my own getting there and then realizing when I arrive, he is holy, holy, holy. You just can't do it. Just thinking back to the purpose for which God gave the Constitution to his people and then the book of Leviticus. He gave them a sacrificial system because he was sending them the message, not only can you not do it on your own, but there's going to have to be a redeeming work, a cleansing work. You're going to have to be clean. So just the whole idea of his holiness and our ruin and then his justice, which must act swiftly. And then the idea that we think God is unfair and unjust because things in the world happen, both moral evil and natural evil. And we say, how can that be? If you're so loving, if you're so merciful, if you're so kind, how is it that all this goes on? And then when he does let the hammer fall, in some arena of life, your life, my life, or someone else's life, we suddenly think we wince as though God has done something unjust. When actually all of this should have imploded and he would have destroyed it instantly at the first sin because his character demands it. So he also is, in his perfections, merciful. And he is gracious. And so if he's merciful and gracious, he wants to reflect that, so he redeems. And in redeeming, he tells his people, you can't get there on your own. I mean, there's the message. You want your kids to know that as you're raising them and, you're, and your grandkids and the subsequent generations that it's impossible to save yourself? Forget what we talked about merely on Sunday, obeying the law, what about just dying and then arriving before God and making an appeal then? What appeal are you going to make? He's holy. You're undone. You see a vision of the throne, you're undone. I thought about, and I do regularly think about that when natural evil happens or even moral evil and someone dies outside of cleansing and they go into the presence of a holy God unclean no matter what they were doing on earth whether they were religious or irreligious whether they were wealthy or whether they were poor educated or barbarian 
whatever strata of life, when they died and entered immediately into Isaiah's experience in front of the throne, they're actually there. It's not a vision. And they are facing God who is holy, holy, holy. It's not even the final judgment. It's just the initial reality of passing the threshold from this life into that life. And they have no cleansing. I often think about that. I thought about the, the ridiculous folly of really an ant-like creature in God's economy, mankind, spending their whole life in hatred of another race, loving themselves, working their way to heaven on their own in a religion that, that they believe will get them there, and then surreptitiously entering another culture, training for murder, getting themselves in the position to commit those murders, taking an airplane full of people and flying it into a building to their own death. And in that moment that they went into that building, they were in the presence of the divine, almighty, holy, holy, holy creator and suddenly knew it was all a sham. And, and I suppose at that point with a piercingly clear conscience, you're reminded in that moment that you knew it was a sham. You just wanted it because you hated the idea of God's righteousness and now you have to face it unclean. I mean, the real terrorist in that scenario is God. And so when you think about the book of Leviticus, it's telling us you need cleansing. And this is why if God is merciful, he has to provide it. He has to provide the cleansing. There's no way you and I can get there, hold it, satisfy it. If God were only just and holy and not merciful, an eternal creature like us who are fallen and rebellious would have been punished in hell long ago. All of it. So, we're told in the scriptures, First Peter, we'll finish here. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. It's interesting, as obedient children. You are children in the family of God. That 
that assumes or presupposes a cleansing, which Peter had talked about before. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and to obtain an inheritance. So here it is. I can't gain it, let alone hold on to it. But God gives the inheritance. So it is ours. It cannot perish it cannot become corrupted. It cannot fade away over time. It is reserved in heaven, protected by the power of God, reserved for us, and it is ready to be revealed at the last time. A time is coming. It's in the purposes of God, guaranteed it will happen. No wonder in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. Right. Great mercy has come upon us. I've been caused to be born again. My inheritance cannot perish or become corrupt or fade away. Man, my attempt at salvation, all those things are true. I, I, it will perish. Whatever I can gain religiously, it perishes from the day I do it. And it is corrupted, and it will fade away over time, whatever I do, but not in Christ. A cleansing has happened. I'm in the family. And so he says, I want you to be like the family. Reflect the searing purity of God. Christians are holy ones, we're called in the Bible. What does that mean? Separated out unto service. Romans 12, verse 1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. All of the mercies given to us in the great gospel chapters, all the way from 3, 21 in Romans, everything before that is just our serious problem. And then chapter 3, mid-chapter, the gospel, and then the fruit of the gospel, and all the way to just the wondrous truths of God electing us. He takes care of it from start to finish. The great doxological worship breaks forth in in Romans 11, from him, through him, to him are all things. And because of that, Romans 12, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, set apart, and acceptable. And then this, which is your reasonable service. <laughs> Just one of the hardest things to translate in the New Testament, but it's the only thing that a person would do who's experienced mercy. It's the only thing you could do and would do and should do. That's it. There is no other reasonable, rational response but to offer your life as a living sacrifice. So... So when you think about motivations to, to be holy, it, it, you sort of back-channel it now. You, you know God is holy and you're undone. You know he's just and he must act. You know that he is by perfection merciful and gracious. And he has therefore provided the cleansing to enter into his presence. And in the Old Testament economy, they had to make these sacrifices according to the meticulous 
very stringent requirements in order for it to accomplish what it was to accomplish. I mean, if the high priest went into the Holy of Holies and did anything, I mean, he prepared all year, right? He was chosen to be high priest that would go in and represent the people on the Day of Atonement. And there he was, the Day of Covering, Yom Kippur, the Day of Covering, Cleansing. He was to go in there and he was to represent the people and he's behind that veil and he's there in front of the mercy seat and the ark is in there and he's got to take the hyssop branch and he dips it in the blood of the sacrifice and he throws it all over everything that because everything in there is contaminated. So he's cleansing the environment. He pours out the water, the libation down to the dregs to demonstrate that, that this is being poured out for God, this is a service poured out all the way to the end. We're, we bring in everything to the table. You got the animal there, the sacrifice, the substitute. And he puts his hand on the head of that animal to pass the, representatively pass the sins of the people to the animal and slaughters the animal it had to be done at home exactly as God prescribed. It had to be done by the family exactly as prescribed over the Passover meal. It had to be done on the Day of Atonement in the Holy of Holies exactly as God prescribed. And, and the high priest would be struck dead if he did anything that wasn't exactly as God had commanded. And even then, it would only procure another year of mercy and patience. It wouldn't actually fully cleanse. So Christ becomes then our motivation to be holy, not just in his behavior, but in his mercy. God made us alive because of the great love with which he loved us. In his mercy, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you're saved through faith. That's our motivation for um, walking faithfully and, and falling short of it. You're not to self-pity over falling short. You have the power to live a holy life. You won't live it perfectly. God was very clear about that. We're not fully yet glorified. We have all the spirit we need we can live a holy life. We are commanded to here. You shall be holy. So be holy in all your behavior. So every area of life, every arena of life we're to look at, we're to examine, we're to carefully submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit to do it. We're to offer our lives as a living sacrifice, which means that we die to self. That's what a living sacrifice is. You lay yourself on the altar. You die to self. And so we work toward that. But there's no room for self-pity. How could you self-pity? You're to rejoice. In this you greatly rejoice, even though if for now, a little while, you're distressed by various difficulties. The proof of your faith. I mean, your faith is real. It was granted by God. The sacrifice is real. It was made by God. It, the cleansing is real and undefiled. It, it is given by God. It is on the basis of his work. And it is the... Lamb unblemished, you're cleansed with precious blood. You're not 
redeemed with perishable things. It's, it's a work that did what God intended, and he gave you the power to be holy so you can be. So there's no place for sitting around and wallowing over your lack of holiness. Go to God and, and uh, come back to him rejoicing over the cleansing and, and ask his pardon for today's sins that you might walk intimately with your heavenly father and you are his child and he chastens us and, and yet we rise another day to keep our behavior excellent once again and to pursue holiness. God is blessed to give us the power to become holy. And so now we're able to live by the high and holy standard reflected in the law of God. Romans 8, verse 4. Spirit-filled, the promise of resurrection life, Romans 8, 11. Power to battle sin, Romans 8, 13. Ian Murray said this, holiness is the image of God visibly expressed. Love that. Predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. So that's our motivation. Not just that he's holy and just, but that he's also merciful and gracious. I packaged them all together because I think they just make a great impetus for us to help one another rejoice exceedingly over this great gift. Without it, were it not for this grace, we would have to stand in front of his holiness and who is able to stand, the scriptures say. No one. All right, well, there are things we can clarify, and it's pretty straightforward. It's not a whole lot there that needs clarification. But if you have a question, ask it, or if you want to just talk about how to practice these things, what the motivation means. we got a few minutes here. Yeah? Shall we not live in a state of mercy? And what I mean by that is... Ask the question. Shall we not live in a, in, in a state of mercy? Meaning, every day, reflect upon the mercy that God showed us. I mean, you understand what I'm saying? I do. Uh, we're commanded to be grateful. But even sweeping passages uh-huh. like Colossians three seventeen, you know, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. You see the same thing in Hebrews 13. I love this section at the end of Hebrews. I come back to it over and over again because, I mean, this is... And notice the condition at the end of um, chapter 12. 
I love this, verse 18, you have, chapter 12 of Hebrews, verse 18, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind. That, that happened at Sinai, all the holiness of God, they were frightened out of their wits. Uh, and, or to the blast of a trumpet, the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. I mean, they could hear God speaking at the mountain and it was terrifying. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it'll be stoned. So terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. No, you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to heavenly Jerusalem and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all. That's, a, that's amazing. We've come to the judge of all, and we're not terrified. And the spirits of righteous, the righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. We're covered in God's presence. So then he says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. And he warns of those who reject it. Our God is a consuming fire, he says. We've come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So let us show gratitude, verse 28. There it is, Nate. Let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe for our God's a consuming fire, and yet we are not consumed. So let, notice for chapter 13, let love of the brethren continue. Don't neglect to love strangers. By this, some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them. That's what gratitude does. It, it makes you compassionate. Remember those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Remember that marriage and the institution of it is to remain undefiled. Fornicators and adulterers will judge. Be morally pure. Make sure your character is free from greed, the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I'll not be afraid. What will man do to me? And then remember the leaders who led you, obey your leaders. I mean, these are, these are all the responses to a grateful heart because we've come to his throne and we're not consumed. Right there is the very thing. Whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, through him, to God the Father. Same idea here. Man, absolutely we ought to live in gratitude. <laughs> and even sin is in gratitude. So when we fail, we're not being as grateful as we could be. Gratitude would offer your life as a living sacrifice. So, isn't it true that gratitude, just on a practical level, gratitude changes your perspective? Because often what we need, even in the moment, is no complaints, right? Philippians 2, 14 says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And it's not really, the context isn't really more narrowed down to just disputes between brothers. It's more the, the complaints and disputes uh, that the world used to give against life and against God 
And he's saying, do all things without grumbling. Don't throw up disputes. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. God is at work in you, willing and working for his good pleasure. And then don't throw up a bunch of disputes about what God is doing. You work out your salvation. God is doing the work and leave yourself free from complaints. Gratitude helps with that. Gratitude retrospectively reminds us of why we're grateful because of this great work. Who doesn't need to go back and think about the state in which we live, right? Romans 5, that's exactly what Paul said. I stand in grace, this grace in which we stand. I'm never out of it. Even when I'm sinning, God is my heavenly father who's going to discipline me that I might share in his holiness. I'm not outside of grace ever. How could that not produce gratitude in the believer? Absolutely. Gratitude changes everything. You cannot be complaining against life and God and be grateful at the same time to him. You can't. It's very practical. And so the holiness of God and the justice of God alongside the mercy of God, by the mercies of God, give your life a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the world. Renew your mind in the truth. These are all responses to mercy. They're all grateful responses. So this is huge. Huge. Hmm. Any other comments on that from your own life, your own ministry? Anything you want to say? Add. Nothing? You're all just stunned with gratitude to God. <laughs> hey, Jerry, I got a comment on that. I think the more we see God's holiness, you look at some of the Old Testament passages and you realize how kind God is to us when he doesn't need to be. I think that's what kind of fuels my own gratitude for it. Because I, I think that's one of the greatest questions that I won't get answered until glory is why God. Like R.C. Sproul says, it's, here's these creatures. It's kind of like, why doesn't God just wash out the ant farm? You know, but he doesn't. No, he did one time and promise never to do it again. What, what is that? I mean, he can destroy everyone. He's already shown that. He poured out supplicating grace on Noah. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's because the Lord poured grace out upon Noah and his family, set him apart from the culture, but the rest of the world was evil, all of it. Um, uh, an un precedented and frankly hard to fathom uh, global wickedness perfected over nearly a thousand years per human. Uh, it's just hard to fathom and God wiped them all out and then promised, I'm not going to do that again. Annie, the, why, why keep eight alive? Why not just create someone new? Because the the promise of Genesis with Adam and Eve was that he would redeem. And so he keeps the line alive on the ark. Even though sin came, came through the flood as well. I mean, it's just 
God was gracious in keeping the promise for a redeemer to come. He had to keep the line alive and there's Noah and his kids. And then right after they get off the ark and he promises he's not going to do that again. And he's very gracious and he shortens man's lifespan as an act of grace. And he gives them a whole earth to operate on and it's going to flourish. It's going to bud and flourish as it had been created to do. And Noah and his sons built altars there and they worshiped God. And it isn't in the first season of their new worship as the animals are spreading around and and Noah's sin and Ham's sin is, you know, right there in front of them. Wickedness. So sin came across in the ark too. And God didn't snuff them out right there. <laughs> the first family, the, the saved family getting off the ark, everyone else is dead and they're still sinners and he didn't wipe them out. That's kind. Yeah. He can. He showed he can wipe, wipe out the earth. And then he put a rainbow in the sky and said, I won't do it. Like that. I'm going to redeem. And grace is going to outdo sin. It's going to be so abundant, super abundant. It's going to be greater than sin on the globe. And I'm going to save and redeem. And so, yeah. That's right. That ought to drive us, brother. For sure. Studying the Old Testament, particularly Leviticus, is remarkable. You see what they had to go through and what happened when they didn't do it faithfully. Every Old Testament book has the history of Israel and it is God's continual. I mean, doesn't it ever shock you in the prophets when he he's giving them scathing judgments for which they, I mean, they deserve them all. And then it's like, he finishes a verse on the most profound judgment that's going to fall and the next verse, but I will be gracious and I will forgive and I'll blot out all your iniquities. You're just like, was the prophet schizophrenic? No, God is expressing these two great truths that he's holy and just and he will by no means clear the guilty and he will visit the sins of the fathers on the third and fourth generation, but he's also compassionate and gracious and he forgives thousands upon thousands upon thousands their iniquities. I'm compassionate. It was the first thing he said when Moses asked him to show him his glory. So he's holy, 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 and therefore must be just, but he's also Grace keeps giving me things I don't deserve. Mercy keeps withholding things I do. We live in that state. Any other comments before we finish? Dalton. Hey, Pastor. Hey. Just want to say, uh, just really thankful for these passages this morning because uh, I'm just, there's a few folks in my life, family members, where you know, they come from different Christian circles where sanctification isn't talked about and they don't really live a holy life. And, you know, you, you want to just kind of go after that and, and point them to their sin and, and talk about sin and the weight of those things. But, you know, as you're talking about the holiness of God and the, the justice, justice of God, I mean, that seems like a, a really good approach to, you know, not look at them, but, but look at God and, you know, 
the effects it has on our own hearts, but you know, has on somebody who, you know, has never really been introduced to how you know holy God really is, and you know, because of that, we should live a certain way. It's interesting too, Jeremiah nine. You know, he, he let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, the mighty man in his strength, um, the rich man in his riches. Let him boast in this that he knows me that I am the God who is loving and kind. Then he says, I am righteous on the earth. So he puts kindness and righteousness, holiness and mercy in the same passage and indicates what we typically do. We boast in all those other things, but what we ought to boast in is that we know him. And in knowing him and not being destroyed by him, there is great perspective. Great perspective. So the more you know God in his word, the less you will be prone to easily boast in these other things. Our might, our intellect, our achievements, material gains. Uh, we boast that we know him. That he is the God who is He's merciful, though he's righteous on earth. So, yeah, it's good. Motiv great motivation. Yeah, Jose. What are you thinking, brother? Mm, uh, just thinking of uh, between Sunday morning and, and today, uh, on these wonderful passages, the righteousness, the justice of God. I was talking with Gonz uh, Herrera on uh, Sunday evening. Man, we were ready for Romans 8, 1. Yeah. And now there is no condemnation. And so uh, just kind of grateful for that and the, the pillar and the basics of, right, of God and the, the righteousness and justice in his character and how wonderful his grace and mercy is you know and we just need that you know and that uh so just uh, thankful uh, for that and what it produces in our hearts we just need to get back to that you know at times so grateful mercy triumphs over judgment why because it's practiced in the face of judgment of justice so it makes it so profoundly powerful you know you go back to world war ii and and you see even on a human level substandard displays of mercy but in profound contexts where the german ss officer has all the power to judge all the freedom to judge all the terrifying ominence of his ability to do it and often does it just at will, just murdering people. And yet, when you see one of them told by another to express mercy, and they do, and they feel euphoria and a power in that mercy, 
You're like, really? I mean, mercy is more powerful than justice? Well, in a human economy sense, yes, because it's in the face of judgment. So when, when you have the right to judge someone because they've done you wrong, when human justice has every reasonable cause to retaliate and you don't and you forgive, it's powerful. My dad used to say to me when it came to being in a fight, you know, if you get dealt wrong, just walk away. It takes more of a man to walk away from violence. Now, he wasn't talking about the instinct to protect one's face, you know, if somebody's coming at you. But to retaliate, he said, takes more power and strength and courage to walk away and not retaliate. And he's right, even as God's perfections are communicated to us and we live them out imperfectly in the image of God, we, we know that's instinctively true. So mercy triumphs over judgment because God does have a right to judge and can and will and does. So when he doesn't, and he expresses the perfection of his mercy upon creatures who literally deserve it all, the, the judgment, man, now that that mercy is a triumph that is so profound, that grace is so rich against the backdrop of deserved judgment. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's so when you think about our human life, when you don't forgive, when you retaliate, when you want to get your pound of flesh, when 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 Christians and, and again, we're not talking about speaking the truth to some sin or some false teacher with strength and courage. That's, that's fine. There's a whole bunch of arguments going on right now on the internet over tone and winsomeness and stuff that some of these leaders are saying. And look, I, I totally get why we have to clarify that stuff because some people try to, they misapply things. We're not to be soft to false teachers, of course. But that isn't really, I mean, that's been a problem. We've allowed too many false teachers in. But when it comes to brothers speaking with brothers, we're acting like they're false teachers. We say the same thing to them with the same kind of unforgiveness. No wonder the power of the gospel fails on both points. You gotta, you gotta point out false teaching with strength and power in the truth, but you also have to show the strength and power of the Spirit of God to forgive someone who sins against you. Both are powerful displays taught in Scripture and while we're cranking up our ability to speak to false teachers, I don't think we're doing the other one very well. And that's why we're called to be holy. And part of holiness is to act like God. And God is merciful and we need to be merciful. Because that is righteousness. And we don't do a very good job of that sometimes because I think, I think we have, we're in a situation right now where we're defending truth the way we hadn't for a long time we're starting to defend it better but some of the instruments that are defending it probably ought to close their mouths because they don't personally forgive other people they're not very they're not very kind or merciful for them judgment triumphs over mercy 
And I'm not talking about speaking the truth that judges a false teacher. But you remember our series on contending without becoming contentious. We're finding that hard to balance in Christianity because I, I think we're just as unpracticed in mercy and forgiveness as we are in speaking truth to false teachers. And we need both. So, All right, guys, uh, let's close our time. Lord, thank you for the way that this truth falls heavy upon us and just puts us in a new state of conviction. Oh, how we at times have, have forgotten to look at your mercies because we've forgotten to see your holiness and we have forgotten to accept because of your holiness, your justice, so that grace and mercy look deserved to us. We repent of that, Lord. Please forgive us for ever thinking those things are somehow entitlements when by their very definition they cannot be earned or merited and we as sinners are doomed and could have no part with them in and of ourselves. So make us a grateful people and people that pursue holiness because you're holy. We thank you that justice fell upon our Savior. We thank you that all of the divine wrath that was ours fell upon a substitute so perfect and so precious whom you foreloved before the foundation of the world. And in him, you loved us. How could we not be grateful and holy? Make us living sacrifices, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.